so much for your provision, especially as we're going through your word, as we're trying to study to be conformed to the image of your son, as we're trying to be sanctified through that process and trying to cooperate with you in that work, we ask that you be with us. As we're going through your word, as we're studying these controversial issues, I ask that you give us both discernment, but also that your Holy Spirit would guide us through these things and that would you that you would empower us to actually understand the objective, singular, true meaning of your word. And I ask that you help to guard us from philosophical presuppositions and the things that can pull us away from whatever the natural native meaning of your text actually says. I say this specifically, Lord, because it is very easy to do that, um, especially in this day and age. So... I thank you for this church. I thank you for this body of believers. I ask that you help us to edify one another in fellowship, and I ask that you be with us in the service to come. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. We're going to be going back into our study of the rapture of the church, as we have been doing for quite some time now. So just as a little bit of a recap, This study has taken several different forms, and it's gone through a few stages to try to get to this place that we're at now. Um, There were two main bodies of information we wanted to go through with this study. The first is answering the question about what the rapture actually is. We answered that question quite a while ago, and we went into quite a bit of detail. And we've been kind of recapitulating that information as we've been going through the study. The other part of that study was answering a separate question, which is what are the opposing viewpoints and do their viewpoints have merit? So that's actually what we're in right now. But to get there, to get to the point where we could actually measure those viewpoints, we had to go through different stages. So first, we had to figure out how do you interpret the Bible? Is there a way that we should interpret the Bible? Or is it something that everybody can kind of do however they want to? Well, we came to the conclusion... (laughs) that we don't get to decide what God's word actually says. We also don't get to determine how we ought to interpret the Bible. Just as we would not interpret any other text. We, we don't get to just come up to meanings outside the native meaning of a text. So the example that we used was, if I get a letter from the IRS in June about my taxes, and they say I owe money, I cannot allegorize the amount of money they tell me that I owe. I don't get to decide what that means. There is a native meaning of that text, and that is what I should be observing. Because we're not trying to decipher what it means. It's not a puzzle. We're trying to observe what it means and react accordingly. So as we're studying, we try to keep those rules in mind that we use what's known as the literal, grammatical, historical... I would say inductively observational study of the text as a means to try to come up with a biblical hermeneutic. Um, As a result, we are able to see when there are figures of speech. We are able to see when there are metaphors used. These things are conspicuous within the text. And when something like a number in something, I don't know, Revelation comes up, we're able to interpret that as a literal number. And, surprisingly enough, it does not cause a problem with our conclusion later down on the road. So the same thing also applies to the rapture of the church. So the reason that we established this foundation was specifically, and we're going to be getting into it a little bit later, um, 
That's what's going to help us go through the opposing viewpoints. That's what's going to guide us and empower us to come to what I would consider to be a biblical conclusion. Now, the one thing that I left out when I mentioned that hermeneutic is not just that we need a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the text, but we need to do that consistently. Okay, we don't change our interpretive method depending on the context. If, and that is something that has plagued the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. The reformers got pretty close. If you study uh, the Reformation, they got very close with salvation. They got the five solas. But where they stopped was eschatology, which, again, we're not going to criticize them for it because we understand the life of John Calvin, the life of Martin Luther. They had a lot of things to be worried about that were not just simply eschatology. In fact, the work they did, we're, we're indebted to them because that was the foundation for what we believe to be the basics of salvation, which is saved by grace through faith. And so you get a lot of those things from the past, but just kind of keep in mind, they, if you read their writings, they diverted and departed from the natural meaning of the text, depending on the context. A lot of that was baggage from the Roman Catholic Church. So when we're interpreting the Bible, a lot of people will say that they're literal, that, they're, uh, that they interpret using the normal means of grammar, but they're not consistent about it. And so that's one of the things that we've been looking at. So to get into this study, we actually believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. What that means is we believe that Jesus is going to come for his church before the tribulational period. We come to that conclusion from many different texts, mainly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, we see that in Revelation chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, John chapter 14. We get a lot of information through those things, and that's what we spend a lot of time studying. But what's more is that in all of those passages which relate to the coming of the Lord, what we don't see is a condition. We don't see an event that has to happen prior to that. And what's more is that throughout the entirety of the New Testament, we see many, many references to the coming of the Lord and that we as a church are to be looking for our Lord. We're to be looking for him. Now, we also saw the correlations between the language that Jesus used and the language of a Jewish wedding ceremony, which makes perfect sense because as the bride which is a biblical term for a woman who's betrothed to be married, not actually married, because we're not technically wed to the Lord um, using that analogy, because obviously it's not a literal wedding. It's a figure of speech to show us what our relationship is to our Lord. We're not actually wed to him yet. We see that later on in history, and we, that's actually a prophetic event. But what we do see is that we are to remain pure while we wait for the coming of the Lord, that we are to eagerly wait for him. That's the part of the purpose of imminence. And so we believe in this idea of imminency, which is where we're just eagerly expecting him and living life in a way that we believe would honor him in light of the fact that we know that he could come today. So obvi the obvious application of that is if you're warring with yourself about whether or not to tell your neighbor about the Lord— well, you don't know that you're going to be there tomorrow. So why would you wait? Why would you put their eternity on pause? So there are different ways to word that. But again, we don't think that this is going to make that big of a difference. 
but it ends up being a purifying doctrine for the church because it keeps us in an eternal perspective. So that being said, that's why we spent so much time teaching about it, because there's a lot the Bible had to say. But because we don't live in a vacuum, uh, there are arguments that people use against our position. So we spent quite a bit of time looking at what I would consider to be the most legitimate, I say that that on purpose, the most legitimate arguments against the doctrine of imminency. And we came to the conclusion that although some of them are really valid arguments, um, specifically because of, I would say, sloppy research and speech on behalf of people from our group in the past, none of them really hold water. And the conclusion that we're able to come to, having looked at them all using their language, is that the doctrine of eminency isn't in jeopardy on the basis of those. So, that being said, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. But, as we're getting into today, and we have been for the last six weeks, that doesn't mean that everyone agrees with us. So there are four main viewpoints that would, I would consider to be the most... Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I hate to say legitimate. I would say popularized. The most four other alternative popularized positions. And right now we're going into the post-tribulational rapture. Now the reason the post-tribulational rapture basically asserts that the second coming is the same thing as the rapture. That the rapture happens at the end of the tribulational period, which means that we are to prepare for the tribulational period. And that's something that they often tell us to do. Now, the partial rapture theory, the only reason we're including this is not just because um, it's a popular viewpoint. It's not popular. Most people don't believe in the partial rapture theory because there isn't a lot, there really isn't any biblical text that teaches it. I'm going to defend that assertion when we get into it. But the other reason for that is because there's actually misconceptions on our side about what the partial rapture theory believes, which we're going to get into. Most people think it... Um, There are two versions of it, which we'll get into in a lot more detail. One asserts that there's a rapture of really faithful believers before the tribulational period. And then there are individual raptures of believers once they get their lives in order. The other one actually asserts that there are two raptures, specifically two. So it really depends on your viewpoint. There are people who are pretty certain of each of them, but obviously we would dispute both of those. We believe that they're not biblical. The next one is the mid-tribulational rapture, which is, again, I'm actually putting these in logical order of what I think is the most realistic, with the exception of the partial rapture theory. Um, Mid-trib is more valid than Uh, post-trib. Pre-rap is more valid than mid-trib. None of them are true, though. But, again, um, we're going to get into why we believe that specifically as we get a little bit farther in the study. So, the first step whenever you're looking at opposing viewpoints, you could get into all the arguments, which we're going to get into a lot of them. But I think the most important way to interact with an opposing viewpoint about something such as the rapture is to note that they treat all three of our verses differently. So when we talked a little bit about how we, what the rapture actually is, these are the three main verses that we go to because they're the most clear teaching of the rapture in the Bible. So we looked at some of the different ways that they interact with each of these verses. We see a lot of similarities, but we also see a lot of false correlations they make between things like Matthew 24, um, the, the Gospel of Luke, and we see all of these 
pictures because what they have to do is they have to link them because we're talking about post-tribulationalism right now to the second coming. So they go to second coming passages to draw their correlations to our rapture passages. And there are some similarities, uh, which we're going to be getting into today. The idea of the gathering of the elect. That sounds a lot like, a lot like the rapture. So that being said, we're going to be getting into that in a lot of detail today. Now, there are five prim- primary arguments they use with the exception of the uh, Treo Ek argument, which we'll get into before we get out of post-tribulationalism, probably next week. The first argument is that they believe it is possible to protect God's people during the time of the wrath of God. Now, we went into some detail. This is actually where we're going to piggyback the Treo Ek argument, because I've been told that's their best argument. I disagree with that. That's, we refer to that as the John Piper argument because he's popularized the scholarly work on that particular argument. Now, just as a reminder, we went a little bit of detail into the idea of Tereo Ek, which is a construction in Revelation 3, verse 10, which says that he will keep you out. He will keep you. Let's look at it because I don't want to misspeak it because I, I have them mixed up right now. Um, now, just by way of reminder, this is in the middle of the letters to the seven churches, seven literal churches in Asia Minor. It says, starting in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Now, just as a reminder, notice what I did there. I ignored the way that they structured those commas because those commas weren't in the original text. It's my assertion, and we went into a lot more detail in the past, that that is the native meaning of that text. It's that comma really messes it up because it links perseverance to the promise that follows rather than linking it to what precedes it, which is the more native meaning of the text. Because in Greek, you don't start sentences typically with the word because. You don't. So again, he's saying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. And then he makes a promise like he does in every other letter at the conclusion of the letter, where he says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So when it says, I will keep you from the hour of testing, we would interpret that in what we would consider to be the normal meaning of the text, saying that we're not going to be in the tribulational period. Because just by way of reminder, when we're looking at these promises, these are localized to these churches, but they also go out to the church at large because he's making eternal representations of those promises. We see that in a lot of the messages or the tail end of each of the messages to the churches. So what they would say, which we'll get into more detail later, I'm only mentioning it right now because it correlates with this first argument that we already went through in the past. They would say, I will also keep you during. I will also keep you and protect you during. That's kind of the message that they try to make it, um, make it say. And we don't believe that's a valid interpretation of this verse. Not just because it's the one we're looking at in our NASB or NKJV Bible, but more specifically because we don't believe that it's actually represented and supported through the Greek. We'll get to that at a later date. 
So that being said, tremendous promise because it's promising not that just that we're not going to go through this time that's going to come upon the whole world, but that we're not going to even be in the hour in which that stuff is going to be taking place. So it's actually a really good promise. So that being said, we made it through that first argument and we made it to our second argument, which is what we would refer to as the trumpet argument, which is, well, I see a trumpet in 1 Corinthians, I see a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians, I see a trumpet in Matthew 24. So this must be all the same trumpet, the last trumpet. Well, we went into detail about that. There is such a thing as more than one last trumpet. And we defended that by looking at the book of Numbers. We looked at the purposes of trumpets in the Bible. We went into quite a bit of detail to prove that this isn't really an argument at all. It's an argument based upon similarity, not an argument based upon actual equality, right? It's a false uh, equivalence that they're making there. And we, we spent quite a bit of time on that. Now, that being said, the third argument isn't an argument at all. You see that in the way that they word it. They suggest that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 hints at the post-tribulational rapture. Um, using this uh, fancy translation of the word meat, which does not mean anything more than simply what it means in English, which is to meet, right? We went into detail about that. We looked at how the word is used in the Bible. So that being said, went a little bit far there. This is where we left off last week, and this is where we're going to start back up today, now that we've used half of our time in our review. So the argument that they're using, and if you want to turn there, let's go to Matthew chapter 24. That's where we're going to begin today. Part of the reason that we look at all of the quotes that we do, and I, I recognize that we, we go through a lot of information. I mean, there have been weeks where we just read quotes of people from alternative viewpoints. The reason we're doing that is because we want, it's not just that we're trying to give airtime to an alternative perspective, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to analyze it using their own words and their own arguments. We don't want to be disingenuous to their position. Um, we want to weigh and measure it according to scripture. So that's part of the reason that we do that. And so that being said, um, let's go... into verse 29 of that chapter, where it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So if you go through the New Testament and you look at the word study on this idea of the elect, you're actually going to come to the conclusion that it is not a technical term. We talked about that a little bit too. Um, Pastor Curtis mentioned it about a hundred times. And the purpose of me saying that is because they see the word elect and they're like, well, this has to be the church because church is referred to as the elect in the New Testament. Well, that is true, half true. The church is referenced as the elect in the New Testament. 
But that doesn't mean that we just get to assign the church to this label when it's not conspicuously like that. In fact, we actually spent quite a bit of time when we looked through Matthew 24, looking at what I would refer to as the Jewishness of Matthew 24. Why do we think that? Very briefly. If you were to just read starting in Matthew 23, reading all the way up through the scathing rebuke against the Pharisees, the tail end of chapter 23, where he talks about how he wanted to gather them together, okay, that is the last time he mentioned gather before he mentions this gathering, he makes the point that they were unwilling, and that's why he wasn't able to gather them. And then he follows that, making the reference to the Messianic Psalm, where he says in verse 39 of chapter 23, that for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until, again, they are going to see him. This condition will be met. He doesn't say, unless you say. He says, until you say, as, because this is a prophesied event that will take place towards the end of the trip, where he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, that is a messianic prophecy that will ultimately take place. If you go through um, the chapter of Matthew 24, you're going to see many references to the prophets. You're going to see many references to things that the Jews did under the Mosaic Covenant. And you're going to see a lot of things because he's addressing the nation of Israel with this chapter. Um, I think if you just had a basic knowledge of the Old Testament, which most Jews have a, a similar knowledge to the average churchgoer, they don't know that much about their Bible. They know, they know almost nothing about the book of Isaiah for reasons that you could probably guess. Um, if they had Matthew 24, they'd be in pretty good shape. So that being said, how do we determine what the meaning of the elect are? How do we come to a conclusion about who this is? Well, we spent a little bit of time looking at the Old Testament because, again, when we see a word in the New Testament that is undefined, it is not for us to come up with a definition for it. We don't get to assign a definition to a word just because it's not conspicuous in the text. Because God's word is one unit. It is one complete unit. And if God says something in January 2nd of 2022, that's still relevant in July of that same year. Like, it it doesn't lose its relevance over time. Uh, Just that being said, so if he says something in Exodus about who the chosen are, which is the Hebrew word for elect that we get transliterated um, through the Septuagint, or the Septuagint, depending on who's pronouncing the word, um, we actually see that being a similar concept. So we saw last week and the week before that Israel was known as the chosen. I wrote elect up there because they're synonymous. We see that in Exodus 19, where they're working on the Mosaic Covenant, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 7. And then last week, we ended with this idea that Israel actually failed the role that was given to them by God. Now, when we were looking at the differences between Israel and the church, we saw this in a lot more detail. So just by way of reminder, Israel was chosen by God, but Israel was chosen by God for a purpose. In fact, the Bible specifically says they were not chosen for anything about them. They were not chosen because they were great in number. They were not chosen because they were smarter than their, their counterparts. In fact, uh, Abraham was an idolater. They didn't ch- God didn't choose him because he had any sort of quality 
that was that much greater than anyone else. He chose him because God's glory will be shown through his weakness and through the incredible weakness of his descendants. And so that being said, we get onto our third, um, our third category today. But they failed because part of their role was to evangelize the other nations because they were in the crossroads between several other nations. And so they were always having people going through Jerusalem. They were always having people going through the land of Israel. So their goal was essentially through the self, um, we'll, we'll just call it the axiomatic principles of the temple being created through the power of the Holy Spirit, majestic, fantastic, um, and the testimony of the one true God. They were to create an example that would make people want the one true God. And that being said, they failed at that. They chose idolatry. They chose to worship false gods. They chose to engage in horrendous immoral acts in these demonic uh, worship, we'll call them activities. Um, Study the issues that led to the Babylonian dispersion if you want to know more about that. Book of Ezekiel is great for that. Um, so that being said, they, they faced a lot of judgment as a result of that. And they were given disciplinary measures by God because they signed what's known as the Mosaic Covenant, which is an if-then causal covenant that basically asserts that if they don't fulfill the obligations of their covenant, they are to be cursed. They are to be dispersed. Dispersion is a technical term for what happens to the Jews under the uh, side of the Mosaic covenant that they were trying to avoid, there's a little bit of blessings that are tremendous if they were to have obeyed. But there are many curses listed, and they fell under most of them. So the primary consequence of their disobedience, of their failure to work in the role that God elected them to do, was dispersion. So let's go to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. That's where we're going to start at today. We're 28 minutes in, and that's the first new material we're touching. Um, But we try to do this every once in a while, just to kind of put us back into perspective. Um, Because we we have covered a lot of information leading up to this point, and it could be easily um, marginalized before we actually get into that info. So, verse 41 is where we'll start. We'll go to verse 44. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, we're talking about Jesus, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What is he actually, how did this actually come to pass? Because this is one of the prophecies Jesus made that verified and legitimized him as a prophet from God. Well, we know from Josephus that two things, there are two basic events that happened here. Um, The Romans would strangle, it's pretty brutal, the children within the Jewish women, as a symbolic act to make sure that they wouldn't continue on as a nation. The other part is that they set the temple on fire and the gold from the temple melted into the foundation and they had to take every stone off of one another in order to get the gold. 
So this was a very literal um, fulfillment of this prophecy, and it happened within 30 years of Jesus saying this. So, but the biggest thing that we need to understand is what did they not do here? They did not recognize the time of their visitation. They rejected the king of God's own choosing. Now, moving back from the page that we were just at, which is right at the tail end of Matthew 23, we see this in a lot more detail in verse 37. Um, We'll actually start in verse 29, where it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are uh, sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Pretty scathing. I mean, that's that's pretty terrible. Um, again, why? They were leading the entire nation of Israel astray. They taught their people the signs of what the Messiah would actually do. They taught them what to look for in a Messiah. Jesus fulfilled everything they had said the Messiah would do with the exception of overthrowing Rome. And what did they do? When the Jews looked to them for guidance, like sheep looking towards the shepherd instead of thinking for themselves, what did they actually do? Well, they assigned the messianic miracles that no one on earth could have done apart from the Messiah, not to God, not to Jesus as the son of God, as he had self-testified over his life, but rather to the devil. And so they were saying that he was using demonic power to take out demons, which again is stupid on its face. And Jesus pointed that out without hesitating. So the result, though, is that they led an entire generation of people who would otherwise theoretically have followed the Pharisees if they had chosen to pursue and accept Jesus as the king of God's own choosing. So when Jesus is saying this, He's saying all these things will come upon this generation. And we see the parallel passage we just read in Luke. What things, what is actually going to happen to this generation? Well, if you study Matthew chapter 12 and you look into this idea of the unpardonable sin, as we uh, referenced last week, you get this idea that the destruction of Jerusalem was certain. That it was going to happen no matter what. And as a result, there was nothing they could do for it because they had rejected the king of God's own choosing. So that being said, we'll move on to our next point. And what was the result of AD 70 before we do that? They were dispersed. The Jews who actually listened left the city before it was barricaded by Rome. And over a million Jews were killed in AD 70, according to Josephus, which it was a terrible event. Let's turn to the uh, book of Isaiah. Chapter 11.
So again, and I think this is probably one of the more important sections, this fourth argument that we're even ever going to look at in terms of any other opposing argument. We're going to make reference to this with every other viewpoint that there is. And this is super important. And this is probably one of the most untaught points in the Christian church right now in relation to Matthew 24, which is this idea of the gathering of the elect. We're going to make so many references to this. It's not even funny. Um, their first post-dispersion regathering is not to go into the kingdom. It's to be prepared for judgment. They're being regathered in unbelief and preparation for that judgment. We're actually seeing that today, I think. Uh, verse 11 of this chapter says, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain. And this is actually, I, I wrote this in the wrong part. This is actually in preparation for the other one. But in any case, we'll keep reading because it makes the point. Um, from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, he will lift up the standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Let's move to Ezekiel chapter 20. It says in verse, starting in verse 32, it says, What comes into your mind will not come about. Even you say, we will be like the nations, like the tribes of the land, serving wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be a king over you. I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into your fathers into the wilderness of the land of Egypt so that I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord." I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you out into the bond of the covenant and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn. They will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And I, I kind of mixed up the ones that we were going into. Um, so in any case, that being said, we'll go into chapter 22. Starting in verse 19. Where it says, therefore, thus says the Lord, because all of you have become dross. Therefore, behold, I'm going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will lay you there and melt you. And I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath. and You will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it. And you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. And so we'll go into more detail about this um, as we move forward, too. Um, what we know from the Old Testament is that there are two regatherings of Israel post the Babylonian exile and regathering to Jerusalem, because that was a very partial regathering. A very small portion of the nation of Israel actually went back to Jerusalem. 
after the Babylonian captivity. Very few of them actually returned. There was actually a very, very large Jewish presence in that land, even at the time of Jesus. Um, most people believe that Peter's family lived in that area. But there are two judgments, two regatherings that are talked about in the Old Testament in relation to the future that are still, I would consider one to be kind of going on right now. Um, the first is regathering in preparation for judgment. This has not come into um, absolute fulfillment yet. And then there's also regathering that's talked about after the tribulational period, which happens at the end, which is not a regathering in preparation for judgment specifically, but rather it's a preparation for blessing. And it is through those regathered that he is actually going to start his kingdom. And so that's kind of the gist that we get there. I kind of, what I mixed up when I copied and pasted this from our last slide is I, I mixed the two verses, which we saw in that first one in Isaiah 11. I was like, oh no, this is, this is not the right one. Um, but the point there is still the same, which is that there are two regatherings that are present for the future. Um, what we learn is that in that, and we'll go into the other verses a little bit later, is that there's actually something pretty terrible that happens in this gathering in preparation for judgment. So we're still in the book of Ezekiel, so let's go to chapter 22. should be maybe, yeah, same page that we were on. Uh, Starting in verse 17, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace, and they are the dross of silver. And we already read that. So going to Zechariah. I'll figure out where we're at by the time we're done. So Zechariah chapter 13. So in chapter 13, we're going to start at verse 7. It says, Awake or sword against my shepherd, and against my man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish. And a third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say that these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So what do we learn? We learn that the Holocaust wasn't as bad as what we're going to see during the tribulational period. Because two-thirds of the nation are going to perish in the midst of the trib. Again, not a great thing to be regathered for. Certainly not. And then what we learn more, which is, we're going to get into next week because there's so much information about it is that Israel is prophesied to one day call upon the name of her Lord for her salvation. And she will do this. Um, I think as a result of watching and I think largely in unbelief for a large portion of them, seeing them provided for and protected by God during this time period. Um, And we see that even in Isaiah chapter 25 or 26, where they're actually protected in the midst of it. And that's for a purpose, which is that you cannot have the absolute fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the land covenant, until they're able to have their king, have their land, have possession of it, the literal land that's promised to them, 
and be able to have the new hearts that are promised through the new covenant as it pertains to Israel. But as we remember from Jeremiah, um, that happens after the trib, right? So again, you have all of these things that are kind of added, and I'm, I'm just kind of summarizing at this point because we're going to get to this next week at this point. But that's, that's the trajectory that we're going into. And so when they do this, when they call upon the name of the Lord, which we'll be looking at a little bit next week, they are regathered, okay, at the end of the trib. And that's where we get our parallel passage with Matthew 24. So we're not just assigning the idea of the elect to the church. We're not just arbitrarily assigning it to Israel because it makes sense to us. What we're doing is we're looking at what the Old Testament has prophesied about the coming of the Lord, which, if you remember, that is the entire purpose of the context of Matthew 24. So I'm going to jump back to Matthew 24 to make that point. It says in verse 1 that Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And it says, and this is a little bit later, in verse 3 he says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, well, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, and that's the question he's trying to answer. And so when we're bringing in these passages from the Old Testament and we're trying to contextually link them to Matthew 24, we're not doing that because we want them to mean the elect. We're doing it because Jesus is answering the question, about the sign of the coming of the Lord, a prophesied event in the Old Testament. So we're talking about the second coming and the end of the age. Okay? So when we're looking at these things, what has to happen for the Son of Man to actually come? Well, the Old Testament tells us that there's going to be a time of great distress on the nation of Israel and the entire world. Both Jew and Gentile are going to be distressed. We're told this is the time of Jacob's trouble. We're also told that there's a purpose behind this, where... What, what exactly is he doing? He's purging the rebels, which is the grand majority of the nation of Israel, and bringing a third through the fire, refining them as gold is refined. And then it is through that third that all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled, and David. And so all of these happen for a reason, and that's the conclusion that we're actually trying to come to. Now, that makes logical sense, but we're going to prove that next week. And so this is why I think this is one of the more important points to be able to go over and to be able to know, like actually know, not just have a theoretical representation of. Because when we're trying to answer the question about why the elect is not the church in this scenario, and I've heard people even in dispensationalism who claim that it's the church and Israel, that it's both Jew and Gentile. We'll, we'll get into that. I think even Robbie... Uh, Robbie Dean believes that it's both. So like good people that we, we love, that we would agree 95% of the way, maybe even 99% of the way, we would disagree on that point. But the reason for that is that as we're looking through this, we don't get to make the decision about who these people are. We're not the pre-wrath people who would claim that this is the church. We're not the post-tribulational group, which is who we're interacting with right now, who would claim that the elect is the people of God. They on purpose marginalize the differences between the church and Israel to make us all the people of God. So all of these promises about Israel 
the third brought through the fire, the rebels, they would say the rebels are Christians who just weren't living a good life, right? Or Christians who fell away when persecution happened. Maybe they took the mark of the beast. Like, they'll give all of these different arguments to try to make the point, but we're, we're not trying to speculate. We're trying to look at what the Old Testament has already laid forward as a foundation and see exactly what Jesus is referencing. Because Jesus assigns the context of this sentence when he answers and says that he is going to tell them about the sign of his coming and the sign of the end of the age. And he goes forward talking about the signs of the times, and then he begins talking about the tribulational period. So this is all the context of him answering that question. So all we're trying to do is exegete on the basis of what he has actually said, what he's actually talking about. We'll go into that a little bit more next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that all it takes is studying your word, starting, starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation, and we're able to come to a complete picture of what you have to say about our lives, the purpose of our lives, the work of the Holy Spirit through sanctifying us moment by moment as we try to trust in you for our sanctification, and also, Lord, for our glorification, talked about in Romans 8, where we're able to look towards the future certainty of being glorified with you and the heavenly bodies talked about in 1 Corinthians and all of these wonderful promises that you've given us. But more, more so, Lord, we also long, just as the earth does, for the renewing of the earth in your kingdom and the things that are going to be happening there, the bloodshed in the animal kingdom. And again, Lord, so many wonderful promises of the redemption of the earth itself. We're grateful for these things. We ask us or we ask you specifically, Lord, that you would help us to trust in these promises um, because it is difficult when we're looking at other viewpoints and people that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, they're so adamant about their positions, Lord. So I ask that you help us to find solidarity with your word, that you help us to rest in it. And then as we're, as we're coming to biblical conclusions about things that we're still learning about, I ask that you help us to consult your word first and foremost and be consistent about our interpretive method to come out with the result and the correct orthodoxy that you would have us to believe. I pray for this, and I also ask that you be with those of us who are sick, who are hurting. Um, there's still a lot of that going on in this church, and we, we trust you, Lord, and we're grateful for the work that you've done, and we pray for healing for those that are still sick. We ask that you be with us and continue giving us a discerning mind as we go into the service to come as well as worship to you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.